Welcome to Investing with IBD, sponsored by OnTrack. It's Wednesday, May 19th, and I'm Justin Nielsen, along with my co-host, Ali Quorum. And on today's podcast, we have Sarah Ketterer joining us. Now, Sarah is the CEO of Causeway Capital Management. So this is a little bit different for us. Uh, she's really going to be talking a lot about value investing. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to get her view on the market. Uh, we're going to get into some of the myths around value investing, talk a little bit about the liquidity that's going on with the Fed. And of course, as always, we're going to end with a few stock ideas, which it's so funny that some of the value is kind of corresponding to some of the growth names that we've also been looking at here at Investors Business Day Daily. So um, let's go ahead and start, Allie, with a little quick take on IBD's take on the market, the current market, what's been going on uh, short term here. We've been seeing a lot of choppy action uh, over the last few mm -hmm. weeks, and uh, it's been a little bit trickier for investors to kind of manage their portfolios with a lot of this rotation going on underneath the surface. What do you think? Yeah, that's exactly right, Justin. Right now, we do have the market uptrend under pressure. We're taking a look at the S&P 500 here, which when you're looking at that and the Dow have really been taking the lead. The NASDAQ has been lagging and we're seeing distribution days piling up. But today on Wednesday, the action, very interesting to see a successful test of support right now for the S&P 500. So I think that's a very key level for us to hold. But as you said, it's a very tricky environment, even though if you take a step back, we are in an uptrend for active investors, position trading, even swing trading. It's it's definitely been a tricky environment underneath the surface. Yeah. And on the flip side, we've got the NASDAQ composite, which you know the S&P 500 did get that support at the 50-day moving average line. It closed well off of its lows, even uh, though it was down today. But the NASDAQ composite, that's been struggling underneath its 50-day mm -hmm. moving average line for a while now. And it's definitely been the laggard index since February 16th, really. Uh, and, and that's where the S&P 500 and Dow Jones have shined. Now, Sarah, I'd like to get your take a little bit on you know, your view. Uh, you know, A lot of what we're talking about here is you know, maybe this these little wiggles back and forth. And certainly we saw a big move, you know, with the cyclicals and, you know, really away from gro growth. If you think about it, you've got the ARC investing uh, methodology that has been really out of favor for a while here. Um, what is it that you're seeing in the market, the overall market trend here? Well, I'd argue it's not necessarily a swing away from growth. My colleagues and I think that it's a swing away from speculation. Yeah. And so the, the most overcooked, the most overvalued growth stocks, those that are the longest duration, deliver the bulk of their returns sometime in the future. The people have been paying for sale, multiples of sales. They've been paying for sales growth, but without any demand, the companies deliver earnings and cash flow. But cash flow is the bread and butter of investing because that's what you as the investor get. You either get it as dividends or share of purchases or, or the company retains earnings and grows its book value. But to get nothing is, I mean, that's, I'd say that's very forgiving of investors and they forgave and forgave and forgave. And now that it looks as if we've, we've come to a turning point, 
in interest rates, as the Fed is rumbling about potentially tapering. I mean, this is all very different than it was a year ago at this time, thank goodness. And, and as a result, those long, long duration stocks, those that promise cash flow sometime way out into the future, they're going to be the most sensitive to any prospective rate rise. And that means their, their valuation multiples fall and all other things being equal, they decline in, in price. And so none of this is surprising to me. Well, talk to us a little bit more about, you mentioned the Fed and tapering. How much of an impact is this uh, liquidity having on the market right now? And how do you see that playing out? Well, liquidity is everything when it comes to investing because it can over, liquidity can, as we've learned as value investors or what I call valuation investors, we care about what we pay for a stock. Liquidity can swamp everything. When there's a when there's a glut or a, or an absolute abundance of liquidity, as we've seen, in particular in the I mean we saw this right from 2016 through 2019, and then 2020 with the pandemic and its horrors, the Fed and other central banks had to be ultra accommodative, and so the extra trillions they added into the into the global liquidity scene have, have made investors. Uh, certainly more buoyant, but it, liquidity is so important, Ali, because the as it recedes, that just brings sanity back into valuation. So, so this shift from growth to value is again unsurprising. And historically, if you think about, and we show this to our clients, the two other major market downdrafts that we can all remember in not too distant past the the late 1990s telecommunications media technology bubble when that burst that we saw very definitely this sort of shift from speculative to just more sensible dividend paying companies delivering earnings now not not years from now and saw, we saw the same thing with the global financial crisis in the wake of that the as 2009 progressed, the stocks that did well were those that were um, geared into economic recovery. So those cyclical sectors responded and they went on, it went on for months and months and months afterward. Right. In both of those cases, what you were talking about really are some very dramatic drops in the market indexes. Um, you know, the NASDAQ mm -hmm. composite was down 79% after the 2000 bubble. Uh, the S&P 500 was down 57%. Uh, during the financial crisis. And so that bounce back uh, that, that was happening, uh, you know, was the pandemic, was was that, you know, as short as it was and really not that deep considering, was that enough to kind of make this shift? Or is it something completely different from those market indicators, that market index prices, and just something else that you're seeing in, I guess, the fundamentals? Justin, every cycle is different. If this job would be a lot easier if they were all the same. <laughs> right. Sure. <laughs> but this one, it was a healthcare crisis. I mean, clearly a pandemic wasn't what any of us expected as we, as we rolled right into 2020. Um, and I think that explains in part why the downdraft was so fleeting. But, but interestingly, the shift from growth to value from, from speculative high growth stocks to more economically sensitive or cyclical stocks really didn't happen in a big way until early November of last year with the announcement of vaccines. And that's what sort of, that's what created the optimism for investors to be willing to buy stocks that also had gigantic return potential, albeit cyclically driven. 
Right. And the, there was, of course, the reopening plays uh, that were very driven by the, the, the vaccine news. And, you know, it certainly happened right around the time of the presidential election, uh, which, you know, was was kind of an interesting shift in, you know, potentially priorities. But um, did any of that factor into uh, some of the decisions you were making back in November? Well, the presidential election just, I believe, added quite a bit of noise to markets and the prior administration wasn't necessarily market friendly entirely. Yes, the corporate tax cuts were beneficial for the US market in, in overall, but the trade situation was sort of detrimental. Right. And uh, to see that the likelihood of that reverse, uh, we consider that as a value investment team rather, that was a good sign. But one of the areas that did provide opportunity is we shifted from a Republican and led uh, government to one uh, that's democratic led was this sort of renewed concern about drug pricing. It seems to be the, the battle against drug pricing seems to be a wonderful political horse to ride. And uh, and every time there is a uh, government who speaks about it in with great force, the pharmaceutical stocks fall in value. And we've noticed as they've begun to rise to the top of our risk-adjusted return ranking. So we rank all stocks that we cover, all of them, on a risk-adjusted return. Think about return over the next two years. As the pharmaceutical stocks became, um, they rose higher and higher on the list as their share prices fell, they became absolutely irresistible from a, from a valuation perspective because they deliver everything you want in a potentially rising rate environment, one with constricting liquidity. All that cash flow, those dividends, the stability, and it's very unlikely they're going to incur significant price cuts because the just the battle alone is what's so great for politicians. They don't want to win it. They just want to battle it. Uh, there aren't really, I mean, we could go into this, but our research isn't indicating there's a there's a crying need for reductions as much as there is the effort, the fight against it. So pharmaceuticals is definitely an area that you're looking at. And with a lot of the big moves that we've seen into the areas that we are talking about rotating into since last November, we've we've seen big moves. How much more room is there to go, and how does that impact then you know how you're maybe taking profits and moving into other areas? This isn't as clear as it was a year ago. And by March 23rd of last year, it became as markets hurtled into an abyss. It was very clear, like crystal clear to long-term investors such as Causeway, that it's time to double down into to high quality cyclical companies because they're the ones that were poised to benefit the most doubles. Whenever I can see doubles, I get excited because normally stocks don't do that in any short time frame. That's a little unusual, despite the fact the growth investor kind of expects it now that um, you normally get a single digit return annualized if you're lucky. Uh, so doubles are exciting. And so that was clear. And then in November, it became clear to make sure we had that cyclical exposure because the market was being rewarded. And as we've um, now well into 2021, it's not as clear which way to go. Some of the defensives look attractive, but also we're not we're not abandoning the cyclicals. And the reason why is because it takes it's a it's usually a two year recovery period. In these past crises, the cyclical stocks tend to have about a two year run where they outperform, but they don't do so. This is really important 
They don't do so in a linear fashion. About a year into it, they tend to give up some, and then the market, there's a rotation, and other stocks take their place, and then they come back again. So that, that's why we have to work on this ranking basis. Otherwise, we wouldn't know which way to drive the portfolio or the fund. And as the defensive stocks rose up to the top, we bought more of those. And as the cyclicals are now being sold off, as the market's getting nervous, the cyclical stocks are beginning to move back up again and we'll add a little more. And this doesn't involve a lot of trading. This is still what I consider to be reasonably low portfolio turnover, less than 50% a year, but recognizing, and this is really important, a number of cyclical companies, no matter how, how quality, you don't want to hold them for the whole cycle because you, then you sort of give up what you gained. So the key is to just catch that upturn before the downturn. Well, uh, when we come back after the break, we're going to dig a little bit more into Causeway's approach and talk about some myths related to value investing. So that's after the break. OnTrack is a behavioral health care company that identifies members who need more care and treats them for up to 52 weeks. With therapist-led care, members return to health. Payers get a return on investment. Help is here. OnTrack. Better together. Find out more at ontrack-inc.com. Welcome back to Investing with IBD, sponsored by OnTrack. It's Allie Coram here, joined by my co-host, Justin Nielsen, and our guest, Sarah Ketterer. So Sarah, let's pick back up where we were talking about this window that you are identifying as where you wanna be getting into these cyclical stocks and then catching them on the way up. So talk to us about your process of selling into strength. Well, this, Ali, is the beauty of working with a, a really great team and each team member has stocks he or she covers. That means we can identify what we believe are gonna be the price of the stock two years from now. So that looks through this turn in the cycle that allows us to normalize earnings and cash flow. And then we have a, a quant group here who apply a risk, think about it as a handicap to the stock so that we can rank these stocks on risk adjusted return. And the cyclical stocks just dominated the top of this list. They were the top ranking stocks we had to choose from last year, from last March, really all the way until November, because they were so beaten up. And this, when I talk cyclical, I mean economically sensitive. And those are areas such as materials that includes you know, metals, mining, chemicals, etc., plus the financials, energy, consumer discretionary, the everything uh, in this more cyclical part of tech, and then not so much this consumer staples, utilities, healthcare, they tend to be much more defensive. So the cyclicals have had a really big run. Some of them have gone further than we expected. And so to your point, when that happens, the stocks aren't nearly as attractive on our ranking. Think about a ranking as a roadmap. Otherwise, we as a portfolio management team wouldn't know what to do. And as a cyclical stock descends in the ranking, we sell it or trim it and then take those proceeds and reinvest in candidates back at the top of the list. So that's why this is all, in a way, the conversation gets confusing because we were we were gung-ho cyclicals through much of last year and then they performed an astonishingly well like more than doubling off the bottom many of them and then from the early part of this year we've been in a situation where we're taking profits some of them and 
putting some of that those proceeds into more economically defensive stocks in those areas such as healthcare and utilities and consumer staples. But the party isn't over for sickles. That's the point I really want to stress. And I kind of wish it were a party. It's kind of uh, <laughs> <laughs> anxious, but they, they have more to go if history is any guide. Mm-hmm. So uh, just real quick, because I think a lot of times when people think of value, and you know, maybe this is one of the myths that we, we talk about here, is they think of just simply low PE ratios. Now, a lot of these cyclicals, of course, you know, they didn't, you know, they had very low earnings per share numbers. So you can't really have a low PE if your denominator is low. I mean, that's just the way math works, right? You know, so uh, what, what is it that you're looking for in this valuation? You know, it's, it's, it's certainly not a low PE. Yeah. What, what, what is it? Well, the best answer to your question is um, where the pain was most acute last year, and it was in the companies that were really harmed by the pandemic. They had any all to do with travel, leisure, hospitality, and transport destroyed. And some of them were just phenomenal companies that I wouldn't normally call economically cyclical. They are when you shut down transportation, <laughs> right? Yeah. Lock down people, they're clearly in trouble. And so their earnings evaporated. They almost all of these companies went into losses. And many of them, their first effort was just to shore up their balance sheets, get enough liquidity so that uh, and ensure they had the solvency to survive. But the ones that that were capital light, and that's some of the some of those that we just never had a chance to own before. I mean, especially like travel software, fantastic businesses like Booking.com in the U.S. We used to look at that and just think, oh, I'd love to own that. Now, last year was the chance to have it at, at absolutely rock bottom prices. And so the multiples got huge because there were no earnings. And so the key is you could just go out and buy an index of low multiple stocks. And I think you'd have your head handed to you. This is an expression we use internally. I don't know if that means anything to you. It just means you'll do terribly. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> it's, a, it's not, you don't want cheap. What you want are companies that are well-managed where the market has misunderstood their future earnings prognosis and that the management team, this is really important, the management team, the CEO, the CFO, all the senior management are proven and capable and, and, and focused to turn those earnings upward again, not just earnings, but also again cash. We want cash out of these businesses. And we're definitely seeing that in the better managed of the cyclical companies, in the in the travel and hospitality related ones in particular. And you've never seen a management team work more feverishly in so many of these companies to improve the business. So multiples become huge for cyclical stocks when earnings are at a cyclical low. And that's just precisely the time you want to buy them. And the same is true for what I call pandemic uh, affected stocks even though i didn't that didn't used to be a category until last year right when the multiples are huge or there are no earnings it looks like the pe multiples infinite that's when you want to buy them so uh, as you both are saying just saying low pe that's that's uh you know that's not what value investing is and i think it's very interesting that you call yourself a valuation investor and you've touched on this throughout the conversation but can you talk to us a little bit more about 
what exactly goes into how you're ranking companies? What are, what are the factors that you're, you're looking for in addition to, you know, rock bottom prices and outstanding management and uh, some of the other factors that you've already outlined? Right. To that, to that end, I'd actually kind of ask, you know, the, the risk side, you mentioned that quantitative team. Um, and you know, that's always our fear is when you've got something that's been going down so much, you know, if your thesis is wrong, you know, you could take an even bigger hit that thing can keep on going down. So at what level do you say, okay, I've got to have a line in the sand where my thesis is wrong and I've got to cut my loss or, you know, are you doubling down? And, you know, I mean, that certainly takes guts, but what is that risk, you know, level part of it that goes into your equation? Having financial strength behind every stock helps a lot because even the the quant model is incredibly useful to us so we can see the amount of market related risk we're taking, but it doesn't solve the problem of what if something goes wrong, what if we didn't anticipate a pandemic, what in the case like a Volkswagen in September of 2015 you didn't anticipate Dieselgate oh my God, so you have to have companies that have so much financial strength to weather whatever the future may bring that brings them not only the financial flexibility of not having to suffer when their bankers ring them up and want the money back, but also they can make acquisitions when when their competitors are on their knees. So financial strength is absolutely critical to mitigate risk. And it's a criteria that we use across our entire portfolio. And then from a quant perspective, the quants help us understand our quants uh, from our own proprietary multi-factor risk model every single stock we know how much additional volatility the stock will add to the portfolio so with this the scoring system allows us to diversify so we can have fewer stocks but with this insight the knowledge that our quants give us we can have a very diverse portfolio and we don't have to think about it like you know, where what country is a stock um, is listed in or or what industry is in is irrelevant it's what it, what is it's what is its contribution to risk? What's that at the margin? What is it? Because that encapsulates the risk the stock will add. And it's a very sophisticated tool that's incredibly important to create a more consistent return pattern. Yeah, uh, and you mentioned it doesn't matter where the company is. Can you talk to us a little bit more about your international approach and why that's so important to you? Well, we began as an international global manager, even though we're based in the United States. And uh, and one of the reasons why I like that is I've always thought, and I still do today, there are more pricing inefficiencies outside of the U.S. market. Stocks are generally less well covered and less well understood. And sometimes that creates a buying opportunity. And that's, again, why active management is so essential, because that's all we do all day long. We come to work and we've got 36 investment professionals, 25 of whom are fundamentally focused at causeways. So that means we're just we're looking for where the market has missed, doesn't understand, has um, misinterpreted what the company is doing, or perhaps just ignored it. So international often because these markets aren't even close to the size of the U.S. market. They, they have great hidden gems. Mm-hmm. And do you ever find, you know, going outside of this, uh, outside of the domestic market, that, you know, some of these opportunities come with, you know, liquidity risks? So is this, I, I would assume, part of your, your quant model, you know, some of these liquidity, how do you get a sizable position in these, um, you know, and also uh, maybe if you could address on that risk side, 
that you talk about the diversification, but of course, in a crisis like we saw last year, there's that kind of correlation of crisis that'll happen. You think that you're diversified because you have uncorrelated assets, but then when a crisis happens, they all go down and you're maybe not as diversified as you thought, uh, or you're, you're not getting any benefit from the diversification, I should say. Well, again, financial strength does help because the better balance sheets win every time. But this is, you're bringing up a point, Justin, that we thought about as a team 20 years ago, which was how do we make sure that when there is a crisis that our portfolio isn't taking undue risk? And that we built a, an extreme risk model. So this is the regular risk model, but it but it's focusing in on the worst periods in market history and which stocks are going to be the culprits and which stocks that we have in our fund will perform the worst. And what does that do to our prospective volatility in beta? Because if, if, we're, if we're harboring this giant beta, if the market falls, that's a disaster. You don't want to have all that market sensitivity and then find um, you misunderstood and here comes the pandemic this again we can we can't necessarily protect against all risks we can anticipate many we can attempt to structure the portfolio so it'll be as diversified as possible but ultimately in a long portfolio not a long short this is a long portfolio we're going to take market risk and the only real mitigant to that because we'll get drawn down with everybody else is that we have a very nimble team. And, and when markets get pessimistic, that's when value managers run down the hallway thrilled because that means we have a chance to buy great companies at valuation when they're being discarded like last March. That's exactly what we did. Great. Well, I think when we come back, we're going to talk about a couple of stocks that are on your radar. And as Justin mentioned at the beginning of the show, interesting that there is a little bit of overlap. So looking forward to digging into that right after the break. Sometimes people need more help, but sometimes they're hard to find, hard to reach, and hard to treat. OnTrack identifies these people and delivers behavioral health care for up to 52 weeks. Care designed to produce long-lasting outcomes. Members get a return to health. Health plans get a return on investment. Help is here. OnTrack. Better together. Find out more at OnTrack-inc.com. Welcome back to Investing with IBD, sponsored by OnTrack. Justin here, along with my co-host, Allie, and our special guest, Sarah Ketterer. Uh, Sarah, we were talking a little bit about this whole uh, some of these valuation myths or value investing myths. And, you know, one of the things I would kind of throw out there, we talked about these speculative growth names, you know, maybe, you know, Tesla and uh, some of those out there, um, you know, Tesla's down like 40% off of its high. So is the value proposition that, hey, you can buy something on the cheap now, you can buy something on sale, or is there a different mechanism that you're using, as you said, with this financial strength and, and valuation model that you've got going on? Well, Tesla is a, I mean, a remarkable company with a mysterious valuation. I don't even know how to explain it. But I can tell you that in the book value of companies, there's a lot of wisdom. And book value is just the retained earnings a business has. And earnings really are important. Whether you get them tomorrow or today, ultimately, that's what an investor gets. You, you have to make sure you get something out of this other than um, an ulcer. So... Uh, <laughs> 
So if you think about it, like the, the growth stocks all mass globally trade still at a 200% price to book value premium to value. And it, they've come way off of their highs. In other words, this gap is closing between growth and value from a price to book value perspective. But you're only paying a little bit over book value for most value stocks. And I kind of like that. That's where I'd rather be. I think that's the safer play right now is to be in companies where, look, they can, if things can only get better for them. A lot of them are cheap because they were on the wrong side of the pandemic and they need to they need to see their earnings turn up but that's a lot less nerve-wracking than being those of these egregious huge what i'd call um, vulnerable valuations maybe tussles in that category where a, a change in sentiment could could lead a long way down in the stock well now let's shift our attention to a couple of stocks that are squarely in focus for you. Earlier in the show, you mentioned travel booking being an area of interest. So we have a weekly chart of Saber up here, ticker S-A-B-R, and walk us through uh, the appeal here with Saber. Well, can you imagine what it was like to, to be in a business that depends on corporate and, and where the fees are highest for international booking? So Saber in the travel and hospitality software business just took it in the chin. I mean, brutal what happened to them in 2020. Nowhere in any of their projections and their scenarios did they anticipate zero. So that was a little rough, but great management. And think about this stock or this company is, is geared into very sensitive to the recovery and travel. The tra travel numbers um, are bumping up considerably within the US. Europe's now opening. The opening is happening and that will lead to more bookings, uh, more travel agents making reservations, which is great for Sabre. Meanwhile, they're transitioning their entire platform to the cloud, to Google Cloud, where they have a partnership. So cash flow will start to turn up again. And that's exactly what we're looking for. So the stock has much more to go. Well, now let's talk a little bit about you know, uh, on the flip side, you know, to kind of uh, put this in perspective, you know, how long will it take for their business to return to pre-pandemic levels? As you said, you know, I mean, you lose those business travelers and yeah. there's still some uncertainty there as to how quickly they come back. And this is already, you know, well off the bottom, but there's still quite a bit of uncertainty there. So what, what, what kind of runway, uh, forgive the expression, do you see, you know, for some of these travel names, especially when there's so much uncertainty about that, that business traveler? Well, that's, again, using conservative estimates makes a big difference. My colleague, Brian Cho, who covers these, um, all of technology for Causeway and these travel IT companies, he's assuming that 10% of the corporate business, the corporate travel business never comes back, just permanently gone. And that's a pretty severe assumption given the need still for face-to-face, -face, especially when it comes to any type of transaction or sale. So we'll see if we're right or we're wrong. But meanwhile, think about what these businesses can do. These are software companies. They can cut costs. They don't have massive plants or mines or a gigantic amount of cost base. They can cut and cut and they're very nimble. And that makes them more like variable cost businesses and really tremendously sensitive to recovery. So let's think by the time to get back to peak travel of 2019, we think it'll be somewhere in late 2023, early 2024. That we have all that to look forward to and that will start getting 
discounted into the valuation. So that's why the stock has had a recovery off the bottom, but there is still, we believe, much more to go. All right. Well, is there much more to go also for Pfizer, ticker FISB? Uh, now we have this chart pulled up in the financial services yeah. group. And uh, Justin, this uh, has been in the past one of our long-term leaders. We're just going to pull up the monthly chart here. And wow, what a move this stock has had, especially since you know, 2011, 2012. Uh, but Sarah, talk to us about why now seems like an interesting spot for Pfizer. Well, think about all the various, I mean, they cover the financial, they've uh, financial data processing for the financial services industry and all these community banks and uh, savings and loans and credit unions, and they're all just getting back on their feet. So their customer base is going to continue to spend and outsource and need more IT support. And it's the consistency of the uh, revenues and earnings that are so interesting to us here. The market has sort of lost, uh, I say, Popularity of Fiserv has waned, and yet here's a chance from a value perspective to get it at a consider a reasonable multiple, both in terms of earnings and cash flow, and then then just to be able to enjoy the consistency of this performance. So this is a what I call COVID recovery stock, albeit in a very low volatility package. Right, and one of the things that you know attracted us to to this particular stock was that earning stability number. Uh, so Sarah, you exactly. may not be familiar with this, but you know, basically all it is is it's a you know least squares fit curve on the earnings, you know, if you just track the earnings per share. And I mean the four, uh, it, it goes from one to 99, one being the lowest here. And so this has just a remarkable uh, stability to its earnings. And when you consider that the growth rate is a double digit, you know, 20% uh, annual growth rate is nothing to sneeze at. That's, that's pretty, you know, pretty spectacular for being that stable. Um, yeah, so. I agree. And we haven't seen, again, the, the pandemic brought us these stocks that both Saver and Fiserv are now on our global value fund. But I mean, two years ago, we couldn't have bought them. It, it really is a function of what happened to them last year. That's why they have, they've, seen valuations that are approachable and that's what we want now is not just gearing into recovery but a chance to upgrade get even higher quality businesses when other investors are looking somewhere else mm -hmm. and i will say that one of the things that on the downside you know and and again maybe you can speak a little bit about this um what what does price tell you uh in terms of the the, the stock price because if you look at the monthly chart um that ali showed earlier mm -hmm. And again, this is something that people can find in the show notes if they're on the audio version. Um, you know, you see that the one of the things we look at is this relative strength line. How was it performing versus the S&P 500? Mm -hmm. And this had a lot of outperformance for quite a while, but then that outperformance um, really, you know, waned. And so that was one of our concerns. Is this something that's just uh, a little bit out of favor? But you're looking at, hey, this is something that the, the fundamentals are still there. And is there anything about a change in the business that you see that might be projected forward that maybe gives us a little bit more uh, opportunity or uh, a little bit more uh, growth potential? Yeah, well, they made they make acquisitions, no doubt about it. Five service both grows organically and through acquisition. They made a very large one recently, and their CEO is under pressure, and the company needs to uh, be even more transparent in disclosing their progress. But that's exactly what we're paid to do as active managers: is deep dive into the company and the management, and then make that determination. And to answer your question, 
no, we don't think there's anything that's going to disrupt what has been a very consistent earnings generator. And also, we would love your view on Airbus, ticker E-A-D-S-Y here for the ADR, another uh, business that got hit extremely hard uh, amid the onset of the pandemic, but it's moved well off the lows. and especially this year, you know, it's it's been consolidating in an uptrend. What is attractive to you about Airbus? And as we said earlier, the runway here yes. for something like this. Well, Airbus has one competitor. That makes it a duopoly. And as much as I'd like to own a monopoly, there aren't many of those that necessarily that are in a value bucket. But this one, as a, having one competitor means pricing power. So um, think about all the costs that are increasing for for all these companies. We haven't necessarily seen it in labor, but yes, in raw materials, who can pass on cost increases? It's those who have tremendous competitive positioning. In other words, just such a great moat. And Airbus is one of them. Nobody else can make, other than Boeing, these these commercial aircraft. And, um, and Airbus is now the largest commercial aircraft manufacturer and has a big military operation. So the, again, a improvement in aviation, more and more demand, people want to travel. And that means more aircraft and more fuel efficient aircraft. In fact, Airbus has just tested a, um, a aircraft that runs partially on biofuels. This is obviously important for the European Green Deal, but that puts them ahead of the curve. Uh, and there may be a whole group of flyers who just want that type of aircraft. So, so much in store that's positive for a company like this and an attractive valuation with it all. Mm-hmm. Why pick Airbus over Boeing? What's, mm-hmm. uh, what, what's the story that's better with Airbus? Well, Boeing had some setbacks with a 737 right. Max and quite a bit of controversy and management turnover and that's all noise and meanwhile the Airbus valuation to us looks lower and more appealing so right there but Airbus has aircraft that are I mean its order book is stronger in I think on almost every criteria with the exception of corporate governance where I think it's a tie Airbus having large um, nationals owning it uh, France Germany and Spain but again, Boeing hasn't necessarily been all that shareholder friendly either. They have, they, I'd say it might be neck and neck there. But in terms of earnings recovery and Airbus spent a fortune just prior to the pandemic, improving, uh, getting more models ready for production. And when companies get to the peak of their investment cycle, what happens next is they start generating cash. And that's precisely where Airbus is. So that's one of the reasons why we're so interested in this stock is there's, there is a, we think, record level of cash flow per share coming in the next two years for investors. And that's exactly why we want to own it. Well, Sarah, it was really great to dig into your perspective and the strategies at Causeway uh, for such a wide-ranging discussion. We really appreciate all of your insights today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It was great. And that's it for this week's show. Coming up next week, we're going to have IBD senior markets writer and leaderboard contributor Ken Shreve on the show. So we're looking forward to that. Be sure to tune in next week. We'll see you then. And for this week's notes and charts, make sure to go to investors.com slash podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. 
and make sure to subscribe, rate and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.